just to give you now an introduction. First of all, to uh, uh, the Burgoynes in general, and then we're moving into Haddowick, and we'll do that in stages. Um, so, well, the first thing I want to say is all three women that we're going to look at today were not uh, well-known personalities or authoritative religious teachers in their lifetimes. They lived uh, hidden lives, and uh, they certainly suffered criticism and rejection, as we shall see, and in Margarita Coretta's case, uh, martyrdom. So their writings only circulated amongst uh, small groups of loyal uh, disciples and in the Beguinages, I'll come to the Beguinages in a minute, and in little communities, uh, which you might call conventicles, small little groups. And it's only quite recently that the writings of all these Beguines have become accessible uh, through painstaking work of historians, many of them, as you won't be surprised to know, women. Uh, research, doing research, particularly since the 60s. But um, what we call her story, you know, recovering her story, the forgotten story. <clears throat> so what, we know very few, uh, very little information, actually, about their personal biographies. But what has become very clear is that as these things have emerged recently, certainly over the last hundred years, these writings have been uh, discovered, reclaimed, and uh, translated, published and translated. What we've discovered is that these three women and others were producing exceptional quality of poetry and writing, which is now acknowledged as a remarkable phenomenon and has led to the reevaluation of the contribution of religious European women to the emergence of the whole range of vernacular languages in the 13th and 14th century, from the literature of France, the Low Countries, that's Belgium, Holland, uh, and Germany. And if we think also of Julian of Norwich, who wasn't a begun, but is in this, this sort of group, and Margaret Kemp, Margaret Kemp as well. English, Middle English as well. So we're talking about women writers uh, who were producing exceptional quality uh, writing in their vernacular languages as those languages were beginning to evolve in their middle forms. And this is amazing because hardly anybody knows this. Hardly anybody knows this today. And hardly anybody reads what they were writing. Uh, this it needs to be reclaimed. And it's being reclaimed more in the faculties of literature than in the faculties of theology on the universities, which says a lot, doesn't it? Anyway. Um, but the go before we go any further, I must uh, just, say, just kind of go into the beguines in general. What do we know about them? Because people kept saying to me, the Beguines, the Beguines, how do you say it? What is it? Who is it? You can say Begin. You know, probably that's how English people say it. I say Begin because that's how it's said in Holland, where I worked, the Begin, Begin. Um, 
Who were they? Well, to start with, we could say that they are a women's lay religious movement that flourished in the 12 and 1300s. Having said that, they ranged from single women living as anchoresses alone to wandering, begging mendicants to small, sufficient, self-sufficient communities in towns and cities. So a whole range, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute, this is very, very introductory, but I just want you to get the sense that we're not talking about a religious uh, enclosed order or one group with specific rules or anything like that. We're talking about a movement, a movement. And so what had they in common? And here we come to the writings. And what we find in the writings, not just of these three that we're going to look at today, but in others, and we have to realize that most of the writings of the Beguines were destroyed by the church, so we haven't got many writings. But what we have is we find three uh, hallmarks or major themes running through their writings, whether they were writing in France, the Low Countries, Germany. Uh, we find three hallmarks, and that's quite useful. Uh, so I'm just going to tell you what they are, and we're going to come back to them over and over again today. But it's useful if you know right from the beginning these three hallmarks, because they're untypical of the 1300s, 12 and 1300s. They, weren't, they were coming from the Beguines. And this is what they were. Firstly, an emphasis on personal, subjective, experimental religious experience. The women were exploring the inner landscapes of their souls and the indwelling spirit. So their spirituality was subjective. And when I say subjective, God is subject of our subjectivity. Anyway, we'll come back to that later. <laughs> but personal, if you like. Personal, and it was embodied. It wasn't cerebral. It was to do with their whole experience. It was experiential. It was experimental. It was individual. It was subjective. And what, this led to them believing that they could reach intuitive knowledge of divine love, of God as divine love, without a lot of uh, intellectual teaching, doctrinal teaching. In other words, they were relying on their own subjective knowledge coming from their experience of divine love. So, subjective. Secondly, and again, these are all untypical of the age, so they're very important. These are the three things that mark out the guy's spirituality, which we'll explore over the day. One is the subjective nature of it, with its claim to intuitive knowledge of God. 
The second uh, thing is that rather than simply, as it were, seeking to follow the way of Christ, they were seeking union with Christ. They were seeking mystical union. In other words, they were contemplatives. Now, we think that, you know, everybody's a contemplative these days. Everybody understands about mystical theology. This is not the case. Union with God was not the norm uh, taught by the church uh, in the 10, 1200s or 1300s at all. Um, the church taught a path which led through uh, obedience to the authority of the church and involved uh, certain practices uh, and uh, attending and receiving the sacraments and so on and so forth. Um, However, there was, a, there was a general movement uh, going on at this time, which is called uh, the Apostolic Way or the Vita Apostolica, which was a whole movement, evangelical movement in the church, where people were trying to, as it were, get back to evangelical poverty, following the life of Christ. Now, these women wanted to follow the life of Christ, so they practiced the virtues, they shared, as it were, in the humility and suffering of Christ, but they wanted to go further. They wanted to enter into union with Christ, if you like, to become brides of Christ. And yes, we'll see that is not an appropriate term for the Beguines. Um, so although their path, as it were, was the three-stage path, going, as it were, through um, uh, practices of virtue, purification, if you like, uh, its aim was the higher aims, which we know about from mystical theology, uh, if you like, purification, illumination, union. And you're wondering, where's this all coming from? It is coming through uh, the saint, which is the teaching, which is called St. Dennis, the Areopagite in the West, or Dionysius, the Areopagite in the, West, in the East, it's a whole tradition that's coming from Eastern Christianity. How it got to the Beguines, I don't know, but we can talk about that. So the aim of the Beguines uh, was to move through practicing virtues and inner purification and humility to union of wills or even union of will with God, or even the negation of your own egoic will in order to become what they call a simple soul, one with God. A simple soul, one with God. Now that was not typical uh, of the teaching of the church in the 13th century, although we might be, we recognize it as the wisdom tradition or in the East, the tradition of desert spirituality or the hesychastic tradition. Um, now, the most controversial thing about their spirituality is the third thing, although the second is pretty controversial, uh, but the third thing was in order to express this spirituality and these religious experiences, uh, they didn't use, uh, you know, they weren't schooled in the Latin uh, schools, 
of uh, theology that the clergy were schooled in. They didn't have access to them. So what they used to express their experience was secular uh, songs and poetry, which uh, uh, was very popular in Europe, had been spread from Provençal by the troubadours, and is called in English the courtly love tradition, courtly love poetry. Uh, is called in French uh, Fine Amour, and is called in German uh, the Minnesang. Minnesang in German. Minna. I'll come back to that. This is just an introduction. You've got a lot of this written down, but I want you to understand these three principles because they'll be useful when you go in. Minna. Okay. De Minna. Middle German, which is also Middle Dutch. De Minna is uh, the lady love. Lady love. You know about courtly poetry? It was, um, you perhaps you've heard of the Roman de, or the Rose, it was things like that. It's, um, the idea is, it's a stylized form of, of um, secular poetry that was sung by troubadours uh, in the courts of the nobility, yeah? And it's a stylized form, uh, very sophisticated, I might add, a form of poetry with music, lyrics, uh, a lot of it's in dialogue, uh, and it's about the knight and his valor and his prowess and all that he's doing for his lady love. Okay? Uh, who is, in fact, just an object of, you know, in this is the object of his desire. Now, what the, the Beguines did is they used the word lady love in English or domina or amour, for God. And lady love is feminine. So whenever they're talking about God as divine love, they use this terminology and they use the, they formed all their, their poetry, as we'll see, and all the shapes of their poetry and how they, all the styles of their poetry were based on this very sophisticated courtly love so this is really very radical and revolutionary uh, and um, uh, is what's really very fascinating about their work. So we're going to have a look at that in a minute. So these three traditions, or these three hallmarks of themes that come up over and over again, one is the emphasis on their subjective, intuitive knowledge of God as divine love themselves through their own experience rather than objective doctrinal teaching of the church. Secondly, uh, their quest through uh, virtue, suffering, and humility to the higher stages of illumination and union, union or union of will with God. And thirdly, uh, the language in which they expressed this spirituality was borrowed from the secular courtly love tradition. And in it, love, which is the name for a god, or lady love, or divine love, is feminine. So these are the three elements. And I can give you an example of how they all come together in a, in a little um, short passage of a letter from um, 
had a week, which you, you, can, you will have. But it just kind of sums this all up very neatly. Uh, this is what she says. It's letter six. <clears throat> before love breaks through and before she transports us out of ourselves and so touches us with herself that we become one spirit and one being with her and in her, we must first offer her fine service and suffering. Fine service in all the works of virtue and suffering in total obedience to her. Thus we must stand with renewed vigor with hands which are ever ready for virtuous work and with a will that is ready for all those virtues in which love is honored. With no other goal than that love should take her rightful place among us and in all creatures, according to our debt to her. This is to hang on the cross with Christ, to die with him and to rise again with him. So you can see this is very powerful um, expression and quite unique kind of way of expressing, uh, but obviously in a very devout way. I mean, this is Catholic, this is Orthodox. But as we see, the church wasn't very happy with it. Uh, but, you know, it's the way it's expressed and the devotion that is expressed and the determination. Now, I don't want to talk for too long, but I do need to give you a little bit more information before we um, uh, split up and and go and do various things. And that is, I need to tell you a little bit about um, how this all came about. Where did these guides come from? You know, how, how did this movement um, get, get off the ground? And where has it gone? You know, it came and it went. How? Well, this is just a very short, little potted history, but it kind of, to try and explain, as it were, the sociology, if you like, of this. Uh, this rise of single lay women with a religious sense of vocation in the mid-1200s. I think the one way of it, understanding it is to see there was actually a social crisis in Northern Europe at the time. And the crisis was, basically, that there was a surplus of women from the nobility and the middling classes, if you like, in Northern Europe. There were a lot more women around than there were men. Now, why was this? Are there three, uh, or there were women who were not married. Let's put it another way. There were a lot of women around who were not married, which was, or in the convents. Now, why was this? Because this had never happened before. Or, you know, this was a, a phenomenon. Why was this? Now, there are three suggested reasons. Uh, one is um, that, uh, so this, one of the factors is that, strangely as it may seem, the doctrine of transubstantiation in the church was becoming the dominant understanding of the Eucharist. And as the Eucharist was becoming more and more, as it were, uh, equated with, um, you know, divine... Uh, holy, you know, women, the 
women married to priests became more and more of a problem until eventually, um, in order to, as it were, uh, the emphasis became that the priesthood had to be celibate. Uh, you know, they could not be, as it were, defined by you know, the daughters of Eve, etc. We all know about that argument. So anyway, the point is women, wives of, of priests, were literally put out. So there were a lot of religious women wandering around who had been wives of priests. So that's one point. Another point is that um, because of this, these Gregorian reforms which were going on, which had led to this evangelical uh, revival, this apostolic life uh, throughout Christendom, men were flocking to the new orders. Right? There was the, the, the Cistercians, there was the reformed Benedictine monasteries. Uh, there were the new orders, such as the, the pre-Monstratensian canons and the Franciscan friars. So there were all these new male communities forming, and they didn't want particularly women adherents um, because the women were regarded as a drain on the resources, uh, a source of temptation for the male clerics who had to minister to them, and, you know, basically a burden that was irrelevant to, to the monastic or mendicant aims of the founders of these communities. So although some of them did, to a certain extent, accommodate uh, women, at least in the first generation, like the Franciscans tried, uh, and the Benedictines, but after that they really didn't want the women around. So there were a lot of women about who, you know, had a religious uh, calling, but um, uh, and whose men had gone off to join these communities. Uh, and then the, the, the third uh, element in all this was the Crusades. Um, so, you know, uh, the Crusades constantly drained off all the eligible husbands for the daughters of the nobility and their yeomanry. So if you add all that together, you can see uh, that for, there were a lot of women around who had a desire to express their lives in some kind of religious form, and who were looking for an alternative uh, model of lifestyle, either to marriage or to enclosed uh, convents. And this became more urgent uh, in 1215 because of the Fourth Lateran Council, uh, which attempted to control all these women who were becoming recluses and anchoresses and joining themselves to hospitals and churches and, 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 and schools and, and, and trying to get into the, the men's communities. And there were all these women wandering around and they're starting to network and form themselves into associations. And the church panicked and issued a series of decree, decrees that all women who were not married or in convents had to go into convents and be enclosed. And at that stage, it, was, it, it became impossible for many of these women who had uh, begun to develop, uh, uh, as it were, a lay alternative lifestyle um, to do this, to go into an enclosed order. And so they began to form themselves uh, into small communities. They had their own property. Uh, they worked so they could earn a living. Um, and uh, basically 
they became, they formed themselves into uh, little um, uh, communities, not all of them, some of them remained single, some of them were wandering around, as we shall see, but some of them formed themselves into these beguinages, as we call them, beguinages in English, begeinhoven in Dutch or Belgium. And these were like, if you've ever seen like uh, an almshouse, that's like a close, where the little houses all look inwards. And each house is separate, but they're all built like little terraces. That's what they built. And to give you an idea what we're talking about, by about the year 1300, there was a beguinage in every town in Northern Europe. We're not talking about one or two. There were beguinages spreading. They started developing in, in Liège, or Lauk, depending on your Dutch or French, in Belgium, and uh, especially around the uh, movement around Mary of Oignes, uh, but around that area. And they spread from there south through to France and down to Italy. They went up north through Belgium, which was then Brabant and Flanders, into South Holland. From there, they went up to Sweden. They went across the Rhine into Germany and as far as Poland. This was, this was a women's movement. You said, well, I've never heard of it. No, you haven't heard of it, have you? <laughs> but this is, did some of you have heard of it? But uh, this is incredible. And um, some people call it the first women, European women's movement. Um, they were called Beguines. Um, now, nobody knows where the word came from, but there's lots of ideas about it. Um, to pray is bidden in Middle Dutch and German, and actually Middle English as well. Bidden is to, is, is to pray. Bedelen is to beg. See connections with Begine. Uh, it could have come from, in French, le beigue, le beigue, uh, the woman, the, the person in, in grey. But there's no question that the church used the word in Latin, begina, to mean heretic. So the church was using it in that way, but the begines were calling themselves begines. So they weren't calling themselves heretics, but it's the way it got used in, in papal balls. Okay, it's different from the way they were using it. Uh, but anyway, so it became pejorative depending on, or, you know, depending on where you were in the debate. There was never a coherent group with a single leader or an organized structure. As I say, they networked, entered into free association, often the women retaining their private property, and they formed these Begeinhoven. And they lived in open community, close to a local parish where they were all involved. They took temporary vows of chastity, but they were free to leave in order to marry or to join a convent, and some of them did. They didn't stay in one place. They, some of them went, as we will see, in different directions. Um, some Baganages developed house rules and chose a council of mistresses or a grandmistress to lead them, but there's so many different variations. You can't talk about a rule as such. And um, now I'm just going to sort of 
uh, read you something from Hadawi because we're moving towards her now. But um, and then I'm going to stop talking. You'll be pleased to know. But um, just I just need to have you have this background before you start reading the text. The Baganages were not convents, so they didn't have a church in the middle. They had the green, and they would have probably had a physic garden, you know, where you grew all your herbs. But what you have to imagine is these weren't quiet places like convents, um, because to just tell you what these Baganages were doing in order to to live, to survive financially without any sort of church or, or, or male support. Um, uh, here we are. Um, I put here, for a woman of a reclusive or contemplative character, life in a Beguinage could be demanding, for it was hardly conducive to peace and quiet. The Beguines worked at home in cottage industries as weavers or spinners. They took in laundry, they fostered and taught children, and they cared for the sick. In other words, this sounds incredibly contemporary. We're talking about women who were multitasking. Right? There were child, children running around. There were elderly people to look after. They were all working hand labor to earn their, their keep. They were also reading and writing, which is very strange for women in those days. They were literate. You know, this, this is a period of time when parish clergy were not literate. They were more literate than the clergy, and this is an issue, as we'll see. Uh, so there was all this going on, and at the same time, they were trying to practice a contemplative life. Does this sound familiar? <laughs> it seems to me just so contemporary, I can't, I can't get over it, because I, there's no other model like this in the coming from the Middle Ages, that I can see. Uh, but listen to this. This is, this is Hadawik. Now, as I said, how do, you, how do you hold together that balance between action and contemplation? How do you live in community, whether it's a family, uh, whether it's uh, the church, parish life, whether it's the hotel, uh, whether it's your workplace? You know, how do you hold all these things in tension? And it's interesting, because... This is a letter from her which gives you a kind of feeling that this was a busy place, but also that she was trying to live, live a contemplative life. And I think that's fascinating. It's very contemporary. This is what she says. We have too much self-will. We seek too much repose. And we're too concerned with our own peace and ease. We become too easily tired, depressed, and dejected. We wish to be godly in church, but at home and elsewhere, we wish to know about all those worldly things that help us or harm us. There we find time to be with our friends, to talk and to socialize, to quarrel and to make up. We wish to win for ourselves a good name by small acts of love, and we get excited about nice clothes, about fine food, things of beauty, and the unnecessary pleasures of the world. And then she goes on. No one should use entertainments in order to escape from God. For it's we who fall from God, not God from us. And since we withhold things from love, we do not wear her crown and are not exalted or honored by her. And then she says, you know, oh, with all these faults, we remain stunted in the spiritual life and imperfect in all virtues. 
Oh Lord, how difficult it is. Oh, it's just so, this is just so contemporary. I can't get over it. This has been written 800 years ago. Oh Lord, how difficult it is. God must increase in us and so perfect our being. Now this is incredibly beguiling. That the Trinity may delight in us and that we might become one with the unity of the Godhead. Wow. So this is this, you know, how do you hold all these things in balance? So that's the kind of feeling of what we're talking about here. And it's out of this kind of world and alternative lifestyle uh, that this spirituality emerged. So I just need to tell you what happened to the Beguines, because they, they came and then they disappeared again. And you may wonder what happened to them. What happened to them was that... Um, they became too successful, really, basically. Uh, when you think of, um, think of the city of Cologne, uh, which was the second largest city in uh, Europe, with a population uh, at this period of about 30,000 people. Paris was the, the first one. Uh, by uh, between 1250 and 1350, that's during 100 years, over 100 Beguinages were built in Cologne, housing more than 1,000 <laughs> Beguines. Can you imagine the city guilds of Cologne that controlled the weaving industry, how they would feel about 1,000 independent women weaving cloth in their city. So, from an economic point of view, they became a threat to the clothes shop of the guild system. There were also the imperial powers felt threatened by them, secular imperial powers. And as far as the church was concerned, um, they, we, they came to be regarded as um, heretics. Now, we're going to look at that more detail this afternoon. But I'd already told you that local clergy were way out of their depth because they were mainly illiterate, and these women were literate. They weren't accepting their authority. They were too independent-minded. And also this developing of mystical theology. Uh, and basically, uh, widespread persecution uh, ensued. <clears throat> And a series of um, edicts um, came, were, were issued by a Pope Clement V. They're sometimes called the Clementines. You know, not the orange, but you know, Clementines. Uh, 1311 to 1312. So really, we've only got about 60 years into the Beguine, well, perhaps just a little bit more than that, 70 years. Uh, and uh, they were, uh, these edicts were basically um, uh, denouncing Beguines as guilty of the so-called heresy of the free spirit. Now, I'll come back to that this afternoon because it doesn't exist. But anyway, uh, this, was what, this was what was cobbled together, that they were guilty of the heresy of the free spirit. And from that time, there was um, uh, Beguinage, uh, Beguinages were closed down. The women's property was seized by the church their private property, and they were forcibly either married or put into uh, convents. Uh, but, and this is the point about uh, Belgium, uh, there were three 
uh, leading bishops in Brabant uh, and Flanders who um, tried to protect uh, the Beguines of that area, which is you know, South Holland and North Belgium, if you think of it like that today. Uh, and uh, when Clement died, the next pope was a little bit more uh, amenable. And so uh, they made a delegation to him. And, um, uh, and uh, there was a bull issued in 1318, so that's what, uh, six years later, which um, basically gave some protection to Burgoynes living in the low, low, in low countries. And that's why the Burgoynes weren't destroyed there. And what, but they were turned into church charitable institutions or more into, like convents, uh, and they became under the control of the church. And they were uh, extended during the Counter-Reformation, which is where all these extra bits were built on churches and orphanages and hospitals and things. And that was much, much later. That's in the 16th, 17th century. But then they were mainly uh, shut down during the French Revolution. So there was a, like a second bloom period for these Beguinages, particularly along the Schelde uh, area. Um, uh, well, from Brugge, Ghent, Antwerp, right through to Louvain. Um, so that's, that's why they, they survived. And, they, and if you see them today, they've got all these edifices. They're not medieval. They've all been added on, all these bits. Um, that was during the Counter-Reformation. So that's a rather exceptional story, but the medieval Burgoynes basically only survived uh, until the end of the 1300s. So, so I'll just tell you a little bit about Hadawik of Brabant. Her date's 1190 to 1250, if you're interested. Her three, uh, three collections of her spiritual writings were only rediscovered in the Royal Library of Brussels in 1838. So they disappeared for how many years? 600. And they brought to light a forgotten treasury of medieval Dutch poetry of lyrical genius and breathtaking mystical imagery. So they were found in 1838, uh, but it took another 100 years before uh, the Jesuit scholar uh, Joseph von Mulo published a modern Dutch translation. And that was really the, the beginning of the rediscovery of Hadawik. Right. And we now know she was uh, a Beguine who lived in Antwerp. Um, she was deeply involved in this new and controversial experiment of women to create a new lifestyle and spirituality. And at some point she lived in a Beguinage. Um, her letters are affectionately addressed to a circle of women friends to whom she seems to have functioned as a spiritual director. Um, and, uh, but it may be that uh, she did withdraw in order to become a solitary, because you see there's a tension in her work about the, you know, the sociable <laughs> distractions or temptations of the world, that she calls them. Uh, but it may be quite likely that she was ejected from a Beguinage by interfering uh, churchman, you know, confessor or somebody, because there was all these problems. And we know that she did suffer a period of isolation and despair. She used the letters to keep in contact with people and to teach. 
Um, now, here's the thing that's very interesting about the Beguines, and that is that how their work was plagiarized. Plagiarized and copied by the famous mystics we all know about, like Eckhart. We'll talk about Eckhart this afternoon. Uh, but uh, there's a famous Dutch mystic, Jan van Ruysbroek. Uh, he constantly plagiarized her descriptions of divine love in his own works without mentioning their source. Right? Well, um, possibly not, because people were, were supposed to not. But he ran her down. Uh, and Eckhart, if you know, he attacked Eckhart. And, uh, you know, so he was, he was using her work and running them down at the same time. Uh, which, is a, which was a ploy that people used in order to stay cozy with the church. You know, because as soon as somebody was declared a heretic, or, or, you know, then, or Inquisition was, then you ran them down. Even used. So there's, it, it's a bit complicated. But um, what we do know is, and it, it is an irony, or not irony, perhaps it's the work of the Holy Spirit, we do know that although uh, Jan van Ruysbroek himself uh, um, uh, was running her down and yet plagiarizing her work. He did have a disciple called Jan van Leeuwen, who does mention Hadwig and who calls her a wonderful woman, a genuine teacher, and uh, whose counsel is as true as St. Paul's. Well, that's, you know. And it is uh, an, an extraordinary thing that it was in the monasteries connected with Roysbrook that her work was was uh, collected and copied. So although Roysbrook himself in the Brunendal, you know, he, he, he was plagiarizing, but, but later in the Brunendal monasteries, which he founded, this movement in Holland, uh, that's where this work was, uh, in Belgium, that's where this work was, was preserved. And that's how it got into uh, the Royal Library in Brussels. So, you know, the Holy Spirit works in, in these ways even in spite of, you know. So that's how it was preserved. Otherwise, it would have all been lost. Because one thing we have to understand is that most of the writings of the Beguines were destroyed uh, after these Clementines. These are only the ones that, that escaped. Um, so that's another thing that's amazing. Now, um, I'd really like to talk to you a bit more about... In in, in detail about the poetry, but first I'm, I suggest that we read some more, uh, and then I'm going to go into, into the structure of the poetry and the theology that's in the poetry. I've also already mentioned that her poems in, in stanzas particularly brought Middle Dutch to a height uh, uh, of expression and flexibility uh, capable of expressing the highest aspirations of human love and spiritual depth. You know, they were shaping language. They were forging it uh, at the time. Um, you know, there were so many words, as it were. And, uh, she, you know, these poet, poets, they were, they were creating new met metaphors, uh, stretching the language. It, it was evolving through their writing. I mean, um, Hadewijk did for Dutch, Middle D Dutch, what 
Chaucer did for English 150 years later. That's how early she was. You know, Chaucer, you know, evolved Middle English, out of which modern English has evolved, and Hadowick evolved Middle Dutch, which is also Middle Flemish, because we're going over the top of Belgium. Um, but if you'd like to compare her with somebody, the best comparison, according to the literary experts, is Dante, who was uh, her contemporary, Italian Dante. It was a, at the same kind of period. Because Dante did the same thing as her, he took popular secular love poetry that had been stylized in this uh, Provencal uh, courtly poetry and sung throughout Europe by the troubadours and transformed it, uh, its rather rigid and stylized conventions into an instrument able to refract myriad experiences of the human soul. So yes, she can be compared with Dante. Um, and this is what uh, Mother Columba Hart, who's one of the experts on Hadda Week, and she's on your bibliography I'll give you, what she says about Hadwick. Her poems themselves are proof that she had mastered the troubadour's art. It has been said that just as Bernard of Clairvaux used the Song of Songs to express his most intimate and personal experience of God, Hadwick used the poetry of courtly love to express the emotional tensions of the longing for God showing an unfailing mastery of all its techniques, stanza structure, the tornado, meter, rhyme, assonance, concantation, and figures of speech. So all this technical stuff she was using. Uh, she clearly came from an educated background and was widely read in Latin, Old French, and Provençal, as well as Dutch. She was a creative genius. Uh, and yet she suffered social exclusion and her name and work was obliterated from history. And now we come to one of the issues about her theology, which is uh, we're going to see again this afternoon with the other Beguines, and that is this controversial element which made her unacceptable to the church. And it's to do with the way she describes love. It's the way she describes love. Because she's pushing the boundaries of the language about the divine. Um, she's pushing the boundaries uh, because she's describing emotions. Emotions of yearning, desire, intimacy with God. Which were way beyond the bounds of convention. The way you talked about God. Even in mystical um, she was talking from her feelings and from her body. And this has now got a name in women's studies. It's called uh, femme or femme écriture, bodily knowing or writing the body. It's about uh, intuitive, uh, joined up, if you like, incarnational, embodied uh, knowledge of God. And that, include, and that is ultimately knowledge of love which is God's nature. Um, and um, 
in particular, and why it's, it's not just the way she uses, uses the language she's using, but also the implication, which is that since God is love, and we are lovers of God, and God is our lover and our beloved, then God needs us as much as we need God. There is a, a mutuality of loving uh, between, as it were, us as uh, created in the image of God and God, God's self. Now, I won't go into too much into that now, but this mutuality is really something she stresses in a way that probably, um, you know, was bordering possibly uh, on heresy, but it depends on, on you know, <laughs> where you stand. <laughs> Uh, in mystical theology. It's very, it's, it's typical, as, in a way, she's saying what many mystics were saying, but they didn't put it into, into, into uh, secular language. For example, she says about the lover and the beloved, she says, they possess each other in mutual delight, mouth in mouth, heart in heart, body in body, soul in soul, while a single divine nature flows through them both, and they both become one through each other, yet remaining always themselves. This is a definition of the hypostatic union, if you, if you know about theology. This is what Christ was. Truly human, truly divine, uh, uh, separate and yet united. You, this is exactly a description of the hypostatic union. But she's saying this about herself with God. So you, you can see uh, that this, and then add to that the fact that this divine lover that, that is, fem, is female it, rather than Christ as a male, and you can see the problem. Uh, but uh, I have to leave it there, I think, but I, I do want to um, emphasize that um, uh, for Hadowick, and is so close to modern uh, eco-theology, feminist theology, process theology, but how do we, loving God, the process itself of being in love is divine. The processes of falling in love, loving, desiring the beloved, it's, God is not an object. God is, as it were, the process, the subject, and ontological, the being, it's all there in her language. Because if she could do it in poetry, you can't do it very easy. You can't talk about it simply in, in doctrinal terms. But she, because she was using poetry, she was able to embrace all these things, rather than the old sort of idea of, sort of God being a concept or an object out, out there, out there somewhere. So she was able to do that because she was talking, as it were, from an experience of love. Uh, and it was love based on a yearning desire for God, which was um, insatiable, because God is eternal. So there's a lot there. If you know about Gregory of Nyssa and all the traditions coming from the East, you might recognize some of this from the fourth century. But in Europe and in Western theology, during the period of the scholastic uh, theology that was dominant in Europe, this was this was stretching all the bounds uh, of what was permitted to be able to say that. 
And, and, it, and it's very interesting that in the papal bulls denouncing uh, the Burgoynes, they are told specifically uh, that they are not allowed to talk about um, three things. The Trinity, the divine essence, and the nature of the sacraments. And that's so really, uh, that is the, that's the heart of the, the of theology, isn't it? And that's what she was talking about in Nietzsche. So that's where she came across. She came a cropper. Uh, they all came a cropper. However, I think um, you you will agree. Some of this sounds incredibly uh, contemporary. And uh, not only contemporary, but it's part of what we call the wisdom tradition, which keeps re-emerging through history and in different uh, faiths even, as well as in the Christian tradition. No. Um, I'd like to read to you some lovely words by Elizabeth Petrov, who is uh, one of the... Um, has, again, it's, they're all in the bibliography. Um, it, it, she's written Body and Soul, Essays on Medieval Women and Mysticism. But she says this, um, Had a week acquired her knowledge of love's ways and knowledge of the divine, as well as self-knowledge, through her experience of desire for uh, lady love, the minna, as she calls it, the minna. So through her desire for God, the beloved, she acquired knowledge of love's ways, knowledge of God, and knowledge of herself. <coughs> right. So this is what Petrov says. The acquisition of this knowledge came through self-abandonment to a descent, an abyss of humility, where she discovered God and herself. Lady love, the bearer of God to her, is other utterly unlike the poet's humanity, and yet this other needs the human and finds itself in the abyss of love, just as the human lover does. It was this knowledge that empowered Hadarik as a poet and spiritual teacher. Now, some of that is a reference to the deepest, deepest essence of the soul, and I suggest that during the hour you have over lunch, you might like to uh, enter into this abyss. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yourself, uh, Abyss of Love, and uh, basically uh, explore what that means, that the, the abyss of the soul is the path through which God reaches us and we reach God. The, the, the soul, as it were, is a transparent um, medium between ourselves and God, and that is a really fascinating uh, uh, concept, well, not concept, it's a self-discovery. It's the discovery that the self is, the true self is within God's self, within us. And that is what the mystic path is, I guess, about. Um, uh, but not as an idea. It's something discovered through humility, uh, of self-emptying. And uh, you empty yourself, as it were, that the other might be and flourish. And in emptying yourself that the other might be, you discover your true self. So now we're going to turn to Marguerite Puretta, 
on the 1st of June, 1310, at the Place de Greve in Paris, a Beguine was burnt at the stake. According to the accusations of the 21, 21 theologians from the University of Paris, who examined her book, she was, in their words, a relaxed, relapsed heretic whose writings were filled with errors and heresies. This book is called, uh, in English, it's usually called The Mirror of Simple Souls. Uh, technically, it's The Mirror of Simple Souls Annihilated, but we'll go into that in a minute. Um, it was written um, in French, I said, Mirror de Simple Arme Anonyme. And it's, it was written between 1296 and 1306. Um, Bishop of Cambrai, Guy de Colmere, had already burnt her book in public in the town square of Valenciennes. Um, but it may have been that the book had already started to circulate um, amongst this small group of Beguines and some Beghards, which are the male equivalent, but they were mendicants, wandering, wandering mendicants. Um, she'd written it by hand in Old French, and after it was burned, she rewrote it from memory. It is 60,000 words, 100 folio pages. And it's written as dramatic dialogue to be read aloud between different um, allegorized figures of virtue, like love, joy, peace, and, which were all in the feminine, French as in Latin. Today, three copies exist in Old French, but there are also four in Latin, two in Italian, and three in Middle English, which means that within certain circles, it was retained. And here, the monasteries play an important part because they smuggled things into different libraries and across the channel. That's a very important point about monasteries in general, that they conserved books. Um, Margarita spent one and a half years in prison before her execution, during which time she was interrogated by the Inquisitor Guillaum of Paris, who was the Inquisitor of Peter the Fair, uh, King of France. He was the same inquisitor who Peter the Fair had used to condemn the Templars, who you may know were also burnt at the stake. She remained silent for one and a half years. She refused to swear an oath or even to speak to her inquisitor, even under torture. Her comportment to the last was such that many were moved to tears at the sight of her piety. In fact, one priest stood up for her, and he was imprisoned for life for speaking out 
on her behalf. Even after her death, her book continued to challenge the French crown, who was seeking to control and enclose the Beguines. And as we already heard, the papacy was resisting the formation of new religious orders, and in particular, these the semi-independent women's communities on the fringe of the institutional parish and monastic structures. And they used Margarita's book to justify the bulls issued at uh, the uh, Council of Vienne, the, the Clementines. So that's why this book's so important. Marguerite Peretta was a very ra a radically minded uh, Beguine or Beguine. She refused to live in a community, but wandered as a solitary and an itinerant, living out the evangelical poverty of the early apostles and sharing the life lifestyle of the newly formed Franciscan friars, preaching and receiving alms. They used to say, bread for God's sake. Bread for God's sake. That was the... And then you can see how Bedelar, Begine Bedelar for begging. Um, so she was a radical. Um, she was itinerant. Uh, which was a threat in itself, as we see with Marjorie Kemp, who every, everywhere she went, she was arrested, wasn't she? You know, if you've ever read Marjorie Kemp's book, because uh, she didn't stay in one place. Um, she um, rewrote her book, uh, so you can see she was a challenge to the authorities. And what is more, in her book, she had translated Latin parts of the scriptures into Old French. And, uh, you know, that made uh, the Bible accessible to every peasant who wished to turn theologian. So that was, again, again uh, something that challenged the authorities. So by 1311, when Pope Clementine, uh, Clement V issued the decrees of Vienne, which denounced the Beguines as being guilty of, quote, doctrinal madness, um, it was Margarita's book, which was the main source for several of the specific charges. Now, main, basically, these charges are boiled down uh, to two charges. One is um, passivity. In other words, that her book encouraged uh, a passive, contemporary, lifestyle where you didn't act morally or do in the virtues but you know you were as a you know, that quietism okay or Quakerism <laughs> the Quakers we would get the same thing guilt apparently uh, so passivity and the other thing was uh, libertinism uh, basically that uh, you could do what you like because the Holy Spirit told you to do that. I mean that would be what but it was a, a challenge to the authority of the church if a woman said, the Holy Spirit had told me to write a book, right? So these were the two basic um, charges. And out of this, uh, the um, Council of Vienne uh, concocted the heresy of the, of the, free, of free, of the free spirits. They base, they, uh, act, and technically, a heresy isn't a heresy in the Western Church until it's declared so by a papal bull. So it's actually the Pope who tells you what heresy is. So the heresy, the heresy of the free spirit, 
is based on a small amount of extracts taken out of this book that uh, reflect these two, uh, quietism and libertinism. So that's basically what we're talking about here. Um, um, so, historians today regard the so-called heresy of the free spirit as a smokescreen for papal and imperial fear of the Beguine movement. And as we say, it was because of these Clementines that Beguines lost their uh, property, their Beguinages, uh, and in fact their, their freedom to, to, to associate in this way. Now, one thing that is um, fascinating, uh, I don't know how many of you have decided yet or are thinking about coming to the next uh, study day on Meister Eckhart. And you notice there's a book at the back there which talks about the link between Eckhart and the Beguines, which I haven't read, so I'm fascinated to know what's in it. But I do know because we were talking about it in, in Amsterdam 30, 25, 20 years ago, is there is a link between Eckhart and Margarita Poretta. And it was just being uncovered, as it were, by women scholars then. So presumably the book on the bookcase is, is the popularized this. But the fact of the matter is that Willem, the Inquisitor, was a Dominican. And he lived in the Dominican house in Paris, where Eckhart came to live for the next two years after Margarita was burnt at the stake. So Eckhart, Meister Eckhart, who was then, as you know, a Dominican teacher of the Dominicans, the non-French Dominicans, the German Dominicans in Paris. Meister Eckhart was staying at the same house as the Inquisitor of Margarita and um, clearly got hold of the book because he plagiarizes it in his teaching. So again, we got we, the same thing as we had this morning with Hadawik, uh, that Jan von Ruysbroek used her teachings, and Eckhart uses Margarita's teachings. Now, Eckhart, as we know, was not um, uh, burnt at the stake, but towards the end of his life, he was getting very close to being, uh, you know. So maybe if he'd lived longer... <laughs> <laughs> he would have, uh, but it is interesting that uh, there are these links between, you know, what we could consider uh, the, the, the heights of um, uh, high Rhine mysticism of, of Meister Eckhart and Margarita Peretta in the Pagans. And it's, it's a link that, that most, it'd be interesting. You, you could bring it up, you know, next to it, if you come to, uh, next to uh, the next one. But, so that's why I was very keen that we had this one before the Eckhart one, because then maybe people might be able to make some connections. Um, he didn't mention her name. Um, and, no. Um, and, and, you know, it may be that he's, to a certain extent, uh, while taking over, uh, I'll tell you what, what it is that you, this was about, but, you know, taking it over, he may have softened it down a bit, because he didn't want to go the same path as Margarita. But you have to remember that Eckhart was teaching women. He was a teacher of nuns, wasn't he, in, in the Rhineland. And uh, he was sympathetic to women. And I think he probably would have been sympathetic to Margarita. And uh, I don't know, he may have even been instrumental in keeping that book going. 
you know, because it obviously got, got moved somehow, um, got copied. It wasn't, it wasn't, they weren't all burnt. The copies weren't burnt, so. Now, what's the link? The link is to do with this uh, question of uh, uh, union of will. You see, in the um, Vita Apostolica, this renewal movement that was going on throughout Christendom, which was encouraged by, originally by a Pope Gregory, and it's called the Gregorian Reform, um, people were returning to the apostolic life. And part of that was choice for evangelical poverty. You know, you lived a simple life. Uh, you chose the same lifestyle as Christ and the early church. Yeah, you had... This, and the friars and all the cat they were all trying to live this life, and it was very popular. But what Margarita was saying, and what Eckhart developed, was another stage, which you... To evangelical poverty was poverty of will, or what we would call poverty of ego, the emptying of the ego, so that God's will might be done, that you might abandon yourself into providence of God, which is exactly what Hardywick was saying when she talks about the abyss of humility, of, of self-emptying, of kenosis, of the kenosis of the egoic will. And then Margarita was teaching that, and Eckhart took that over and worked it through. So that's, uh, that's what we mean by annihilation of will. That's what it means there. So um, giving your life completely over into into God's hands, like Christ at the Garden of Gethsemane. Actually, what we've taught in the Lord's Prayer, not my will, but thine be done. Um, so, now, I think one of the things that really got up the noses of the 21 <laughs> theologians uh, from Paris uh, is that um, in the book, Margarita uh, consistently attacks the nominalist and scholastic theology that is being taught uh, uh, in the, the theological faculties and in the, uh, the, school, the, Latin, the Latin schools for the clergy. And, uh, and it's a really interesting subject, and I think that we could come back to that uh, after we've listened to some music and read a couple of things from her book, because what she's actually saying is you cannot... Um, know anything about God using rational, uh, analytic uh, um, processes. And therefore, she says that, um, uh, so the, the academic theologians, she says, um, she calls them, um, know as much about God as a slug, she says. <laughs> well, you can see how this goes down. Uh, you can see how this goes down with the academics at the Paris. Uh, and because this was at the height of nominalism and that whole very sophisticated philosophical, analytical philosophical um, uh, stuff that was going on uh, and which was centered in Paris. You know. And so, um, so this, is, this was an issue, and in Oxford, of course. Um, and so... Uh, the, the two pieces I've uh, given you to read, the first one 
Um, um, it's called The Explicit to the Mirror of Simple Souls. Uh, in this little uh, bit, explicit, it's like a kind of opening introduction. Um, she actually calls on theologians and clerks uh, to humble themselves. <laughs> if, they're going, if they're going to understand the book. <laughs> so you can imagine how that goes down. And then uh, chapter 120 is a long book. Um, how Truth Praises Simple Souls. And we might like to talk in our discussion about exactly what is a simple soul. Well, Mechthild was born in Magdeburg in uh, Germany around uh, 1212. So you see, she's not much later than, um, uh, than Hildegard, you see. And like Hildegard, she began to have visions as a child. I don't know how much you know about Hildegard, but um, another time. But this is very interesting. Um, by the age of 20, she joined a community of Bagans. Now, I'm just going to refer to Caroline, Caroline Bynum's uh, work here because she is a med medievalist. Uh, scholar, which I am not. And um, she has observed that um, this inclination uh, towards mysticism and paramystical experiences, which is a hallmark of medieval religious women, can be understood as their way of claiming supernatural, charismatic authority um, in the name of God. Now, that's what I call a functionalist argument. You know, it's reducing religious experience to an alter, you know, a, a, you know, um, a some kind of uh, mechanism whereby you know women are trying to get power. Um, and you get this a lot with historians that they do this kind of thing. But I think both could be true. I mean, it is, in fact, a fact that, you know, women did not have access uh, to theological education, to the Latin schools, uh, or, uh, the, they, or the clerical orders. And yet they were having religious experiences, and therefore, perhaps, uh, they did uh, emphasize uh, their sort of call as prophetic. And, you know, I would say it was prophetic, um, even if historians might say it was calculatedly prophetic, or whatever you like to call it. And there's no question that, for example, Hildegard really did have visions, and, um, you know, I can show you some of them if we, come, if, if we meet again another time. <laughs> um, and uh, also, Mechthild did have visions, uh, and on them she wrote seven books, based, uh, uh, written in a, a low German dialect. So again, this is one of these, you know, this is like um, Platterdeutsch, you know, middle Platterdeutsch, if you like. So you can see how they're all working in, in these languages. It's really, really fascinating. And you know, middle German, middle Dutch, middle English, they're all in Frisian, they're all interconnected. Um, so that's really interesting. Um, so, the collective title of the seven books 
das fließende Licht der Gottheit, the flowing light of the Godhead. And they're based on her experience. Because the central image in, in these very poetic and lyrical writings, again using the style of the troubadours, you know, they all were doing this, but the, the central imagery in the seven books is a kind of experience of flowing or fusion between the soul and God. Their attempts to describe her experience, a mystical experience of union with God, as a flowing experience where we would think about um, Do you know the word perichoresis? Perichoresis, it's the Greek word for the movement of love within the divine trinity, which is a dance, the perichoresis. See, so in the, in the Eastern tradition, this is all normal. It's only, in a, you know, I mean, but anyway, uh, the movement within the trinity of love. It's sometimes, uh, it has been described uh, uh, like, um, you know those, uh, you know those water mills that have got little buckets on the end and they all go round and the water falls out the bucket and falls into the next bucket and that pulls it, that's perichoresis. And the, uh, the, the, the sense of perichoresis, perichoretic, it's dance around, the dance around within God is love flowing into love, into love. You know, the love of the Father to the Son, the Son of the Son to the Spirit, Spirit to the Father, is a movement of love within the Trinity. This is, this is doctrine. If we only knew our doctrine, we'd be all right. Wouldn't we? this, is, this is patristic doctrine. The movement of, the, of, the, of love, of the divine nature, is love, is moving within the Father to Son, Spirit to Father, and vice versa, uh, within the Trinity, and then that spills out into the universe. And all things are created. And then, you know, the word and the spirit is flung out and through and in all things. The spirit the movement within. So actually, it's, it's quite, it's quite um, orthodox. But um, it probably wasn't considered to be at the time. P-E-R-I. C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S. Peri is around. Choresis is sort of walking around. So it's or moving around. So it's perichoresis, the moving around of the divine nature within the Trinity. And divine nature is love, isn't it? It's a, yeah. yeah. Because love is always giving of itself to the other. It's, love is always giving of itself yes. to the other, that the other might be and flourish. It's always self-emptying that the other might be and become. So, it's a, so this is it. So that's what she kind of was experiencing um, uh, personally, and she describes it in these seven books, this flowing experience of union within and through God. And again, she uses this name for God, which is in the German uh, romantic poetry, uh, Domina, 
from the Minna Zhang, the courtly, uh, the, the song of the beloved, the Minna Zhang in German. So this is again his courtly love poetry, uh, as translated as we translate it as Lady Love. Um, well, needless to say, she suffered from persistent <laughs> opposition. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, but she was protected, and this is what I was saying about protection, because it's also possible that Hadewick was protected, Hadewick was protected, um, because um, she was protected uh, by her Dominican confessor, Heinrich von Haller. And you see, when there's someone there speaking for you, collecting your writings, you know, it is different than if you are trying to speak for yourself. You're not allowed to speak because, you know, you're not supposed to speak. So, um, and he did protect and, and collect, collect, he collected and preserved her writings. And that, that's why uh, we have her writings in Latin. Because shortly after her death, he translated them into Latin. So that is quite unusual. Uh, and so uh, now, but what, what we talked about the convent is that after 40 years as a Beguine, as an old woman, she withdrew to the Cistercian convent of Helfte in uh, Magdeburg. And that's actually, uh, was famous women's Cistercian monastery. It was led by famous abbess, Gertrude of Hackerborn. So, um, so uh, as an elderly woman, woman, sounds ideal actually, she withdrew to this, uh, this famous uh, abbey, uh, abbey um, convent where there was a whole community of women scholars and she was able to immerse herself in uh, biblical patristic and contemporary learning in the library and she was completely safe and that's where she wrote the last of the seven books and then shortly after that she died in 1282 and within a year or two uh, Heinrich had trans all the perhaps it was the sisters but they translated the books into Latin so she was, you know, she had a, a, a relatively safe, uh, safe passage through, uh, and uh, so, uh, and, and that's that's amazing, because you know, for a visionary, and I mean, because Hildegard had the same problem. She was having visions all her life. You know, you were very vulnerable, particularly as you got older. You know, um, so. Uh, but she was writing right up to the end. So that's fantastic. Well, uh, she would have been um, 70. 70. 12, 12 to 